Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. On this podcast, we try to get to the heart of where people went all in on security or security went all in on them. And uh, today, I am absolutely thrilled to have my dear friend and colleague, Stephanie Helm. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. And Stephanie is currently the director of the Mass Cybersecurity Center, or Mass Cyber Center. I know I'm going to mess that up, but it's Massachusetts's uh, group for really driving cyber for the state. Is that a fair description? That is, yep. But of course, you are also a retired captain from the U.S. Navy. Yes. And absolutely fascinating and a great cyber person. So I'm thrilled to have you here and I'm thrilled to dive into things. And something I learned about you recently, I didn't know before, is that you are, uh, like me, a language geek. So I have to ask, is this related to security? Is this related to your career? How long has it been a passion? Tell me about the languages part. My aunt, who was a, a school teacher, grade school teacher, she was a nun and taught in Catholic schools, when I was very young, sent me books in French, how to learn French. And it was, as a girl in Omaha, Nebraska, that was like, wow, France, never thought of France. And so... It's a different world. Yeah, it just, I don't know why she thought that would be something to give a kid, but... Did you learn to read from those books or did anybody no, 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 you no. through? It just, it just gave me the interest in, I think languages are obviously a gateway to culture. And that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed taking... French all through high school, so from seventh to twelfth grade, and continued it in college. Uh-huh. You know how they do, they try to get you in to get interested in the culture of the language that you're studying. So those colleges will get you somehow, won't they? Yeah. I was uh, an international politics major at Washington University in St. Louis, and my uh, advisor said, you know, you really need to take a third language. And I thought, really? <laughs> uh oh. There's and more. His recommendation was Russian because mm-hmm. Soviet Union, he said, if you're in international politics, Russia or China would be the nation you probably want to study. And so I recommend you take one of those. And I did Russian and started Russian. So. Was there a reason you favored Russian over Chinese? Was there something behind that? Yeah, my grandmother was Slovenian. Ah. She was born in Slovenia, was Yugoslavia, right? And came to the United States and never had formal English schooling. So she kind of learned from my grandfather and his family how to speak English. And her ability to write English was basically phonetic using Slovenian characters. So Slavic, Slavic, you know, heritage the Russians seemed to me to be like, maybe I could do that. And, and I did have some fun in college coming home and comparing words with grandma about kitchen and stove and I and, you know, all those kind of basic vocabulary words that I heard as a kid. Sometimes she would use that language. And so it was kind of fun to kind of compare. And uh, I had this thing with my dad where we trace words through, especially Indo-European, but even across other languages. And I think it might frighten some people, but in my notebook, I sometimes try to use other alphabets to write things in English. And then you get the phonemes don't meet the graphemes problem, right? (laughs) How do you you get a TH sound in this language and a hard one voiced versus unvoiced? Yeah. So you, you had this, and did you speak any Russian or Slavic languages generally? No, I think that was the biggest failure I had 
when studying languages, which was never really got comfortable vocal, you know, even speaking it was difficult, let alone having a conversation because I didn't really know any French people and I really didn't know any Russians. So the kind of artificial way to learn the language and, and you go to the language lab and listen to the tapes, there's just no substitute, I think, for actually living and immersing yourself in the language, which because then eventually you start thinking in the language. You, you just become second nature because you're interacting with people that are doing that. I don't know how, how did you learn your language so well? Uh, well, when I was young, my dad took a foreign posting in Morocco. And I picked up Arabic as my first school language and, yeah. and French, but I grew up in Quebec. So I grew up with French around me and not as much English because of where I lived in Montreal. And yet my parents were both native English speakers. So in my case, that's true. But I always had a passion for the sea. How did you find the Navy or did the Navy find you given that you started in Nebraska? Was it a progression through language and then to see the world or was it a calling? It was, I needed a job, uh, <laughs> the J-O-B of life. I ended up, my parents moved out to California right after I started college in St. Louis, and I had to transfer to University of California. And at that time, it was relatively inexpensive to go to a state school. Berkeley would take me, but not in history, not in politics, but look at all the credits this girl has in Russian, because I had taken Russian language, ah. Russian literature, Russian his history. And so they took me as a Slavic languages and literature major. That was my big way of getting into the language there, because I had to take it as a junior going on. When and how did security enter your life? The Navy recruiters at the time were recruiting people with Russian or Chinese language. What they failed to realize was that I was a woman. So they had already opened up the cryptologic field to women and were recruiting actively for young officer candidates that had a language, Russian or Chinese or Arabic. But the reason those billets had, were coded for those languages was because those male officers at the time would be in airplanes or submarines. And at the time that I was joining the Navy, I was not allowed to go in an airplane or a submarine. Uh. And I didn't find this out until I was actually at officer candidate school about ready to get commissioned. And I called the detailer and sort of said, okay, the three candidate duty stations I was told were going to be, you know, Rota, Spain, Edsel, Scotland, or Misawa, Japan. And, you know, my detailer essentially went, <laughs> Stephanie, those are for the male officer. Oh, no. And I was no. like, no, see, I wanted to go to Spain because that's in Europe. And I figured I, I could go visit France. I could actually, you know, it's join the Navy, see the world. And he's like, uh, no, I have a billet open in Homestead, Florida or Winter Harbor, Maine. So that started me off in the career. That's awesome. As a Naval Security Group officer, as a cryptologist. So I was in the community because I had a language skill, but it was not that I was going to use the language. I, did, I went to an operations billet that was totally different at that time. And did you do SIGINT stuff or cryptanalysis? Yeah. 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 So I supervised people that were doing Manuel Morris collection. They were people that were doing language collection. 
uh, radar, you know, technical ELINT, electronic mm -hmm. intelligence. So, so I was supervising a variety of different skill sets that the enlisted folks had, cryptologic technicians had. I was never really called upon to use my language skill. I was called upon to be a naval officer. So that entailed, you know, being able to. Oh, so you, you didn't actually get to speak Russian with anybody in Winter no. Harbor, Maine, or? <laughs> no. no, we actually didn't have anybody that did that at Winter Harbor, Maine. <laughs> Do you think you would have had a chance to practice had you gone the the path that didn't call to you as much, the Chinese path? Do you think in that same time frame that you would have had a different posting, maybe? Or no, I think that they would have put me in whatever open billet they had, unconstrained. You know what they were doing was picking the guys at the time that had that skill and they were going to go to an air billet, you know, someplace. So where and how did you pick up the cryptologic side? Cause I get the, you have to pick where to go, but there's a body of work to be done mathematically, if nothing else. Did you get a chance to take any certifications or courses or really find a passion for the crypto side? Um, when I joined, we really didn't have a very robust officer education or training program in the cryptologic field. I got commissioned in Rhode Island and then went to Pensacola, Florida for three weeks. And there are five or six of us, I guess, that were in this cryptologic officer, joint junior officer orientation course. And it really was just an orientation. Like the entity that you need to know that runs everything is the National Security Agency. They basically define what cryptology is and the rules and our community abides by the guidance yeah. that is issued by NSA. And it was really that, you know, in high frequency direction finding, you know, get some basics about signals and wavelengths and the types of jobs that there were in the cryptologic community. But it was three weeks, so it went pretty quick. Yeah, so, you know, how long could it take? <laughs> yeah, how long could it take? <laughs> this was at the end of the 70s, and there was a, you know, kind of a feeling of, on-the-job training was the way that we thought, you know, that's good enough for everybody else. What, you know? If it was good enough for our grandparents, it's good enough yeah. for us. Yeah, and, and I would say probably less than five years after I was commissioned, our community actually did establish a formal school that was probably 16, 18 weeks long, maybe half, a, and then it grew to be, you know, even longer, I think. And then, so they really did sort of like, no, we can't expect people to walk in the door, especially when it's this highly technical, and expect them just to pick everything up, which mm. kind of is what I did. I picked it up <laughs> along the way. Mark of intelligence, to say the least. So you went from having a job to yes. to well, like I was only going to do for four years, and then I was going to get out of the navy. Right, but and you wound up supervising a cryptologic. Oh team. yeah, the work was fabulous. The people were. Fabulous. I mean, very. When did you have the moment of this is it? This is not just a job filler. This is the thing. Or did you? Yeah, I think every service member balances what is it that you enjoy doing in the mission and, and your perceived value versus what does my family need? Hmm. I liked the job very much. I think I was always trying to figure out okay, we're going to move again. <laughs> you know, okay, we're going to move again. <laughs> Hey, guess what? We're, We're moving again. again. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a balance there that I think I was always kind of like, well, maybe I can, you know, provide family stability or whatever. It never really got to the point where I had to make that decision. And I'm grateful for that because every time you went to a new duty station, 
there was just a whole different side of the work that needed to be done. And it was really, when I went to California, I was the maintenance officer, you know, who could have thought I would have been interested in repairing computers and crypto gear and everything, all that stuff that we would be responsible for maintaining. Was it uh, taking it apart to figure out how it works or was it, uh, I know you like puzzles. Was it, hey, here's a bigger puzzle or did you find it there? I personally am not that (laughs) technically oriented that I could take anything apart and put it back together. I really enjoyed talking to the enlisted members that really could tell me why this was, this piece Mm. of the gear was important and why does it always break? You know, like, you know, people were very, 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 very smart about the work that they were doing and could understand like, yeah, this is going to break again in, you know, six months. And so 17 hours from now it's gone. And and that's why we have so many of these spares because we know that we're going to go through these and these other ones, I've never had to replace one of these. So just, you know, going to a different work center and just really listening to what these really smart men and women were doing. By that time, there were enlisted women as well. And so it was really fascinating, you know, to do the maintenance piece of it. And then my follow-on tour from maintaining equipment and figuring out how the goniometer worked for the antenna to go to the next thing of going to the National Security Agency was, that was the next thing. So totally different work centers <laughs> and, you know, things that you can never talk about, but. The things you might be able to talk about. Uh, I know that you taught at the Naval War College for a while. Right. Uh, where did that come in the sequence? That was the last tour I had on active duty, which was kind of nice because it was essentially giving back to, you know, mid-grade officers about, what kinds of things are happening in the military and helping them understand at the operational level of war. You know, by the time you come to a war college, you've pretty much perfected your tactical skill sets. And this is at the time of your career where you're kind of like, now you need to look at, you know, how do you make this all come together? Not just what you know how to do, but other elements. And how do you integrate it smartly so that you can achieve a larger objective? In some ways, it's taking that wisdom. It's like the enlisted person who understood the machine. You're now told, like, we want to build on what you've learned. And we want others to be able to do this and and to make it a collective wisdom going forward. Right. Right. My understanding is the Naval War College, there's a lot of of games. There's a lot of structured games, and uh, both as a tool for teaching and a tool for learning. Is that correct? Yes. So the Naval War College is the oldest war gaming effort in the United States, certainly. And it's continuing today. Parts of it are integrated into the curriculum, you know, like as a capstone event for some Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the students where we try to expose them to like, okay, now you've learned how to write a plan. Let's go game it. Let's go see if you've thought of the simulation. See if it works the way you think it does. Right. But the other thing that the War College has done that has been hugely valuable is creating a safe event. And I mean safe in the terms of it's conducted in Newport, Rhode Island. So yeah, there's no weapons of mass destruction being deployed. Right. No ships were harmed in the uh, course of this event. But it is trying to get the intellectual property of commanders who are very busy people 
to get them out of their operational environment and into a quote unquote safe environment where they can think through the toughest problem that they're addressing and hopefully allow them to explore it and to learn more about the problem and where they might think that they would either go back to their command and put more emphasis on a particular aspect or to tweak what their plan might be. The options are move ships and risk breaking one, simulate it, or look to history in some ways. And you and I have discussed, I know you're a history buff, yeah. and I'm going to quote you back to yourself. You, you told me that, you know, we think we're so smart right now, maybe I'll paraphrase, yeah. but you know, you should see how smart people were in the World War II era. Did the history side and analyzing some of the recent history of the last century, did that play a big role in that structured environment? Oh, I think it is, because I think everybody recognizes that modern warfare, while we might have a lot of technology, there are still some basic fundamentals of time, space, and force that you have to deal with. And that, I think, is the value of when people go to their professional military education is to learn. You study a lot in history and go, wow, some of these same problems have been there over and over again. And if you and don't not even just recent, yeah, some yeah. of the Peloponnesian War, same problems. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And, you know, commander's guidance and understanding who your subordinates are and are they able and capable of acting independently or have you basically hamstrung them to the point where they're afraid to make a decision. And therefore, if they lose communication with you, they are standing by waiting for the next order, as opposed to being able to act and feeling that they're empowered because they understand, you know, largely what the objective is and that what you would want them to do. And so they're able to act. So I do want to cover maybe some interests you have. I know you, uh, for instance, I know you like to read. We already talked about languages to some degree. They say we stand insecure on the shoulders of giants, and it's absolutely true. Do you have any heroes that you look to that you think are particularly inspirational, and, and it doesn't really matter when they were? Are there right. any that come to well, mind? I think we've mentioned earlier about, before we got on the call, about Grace Hopper. She was someone that was not well known to me when I first joined the Navy. I wouldn't have said that I knew who she was when when I was at officer candidate school, but over the course of time, you realize I might be the first woman in some of these cases going to the first duty station, but look that there was this other woman who was a commander who became a captain and ultimately, I think she retired as an admiral and was well recognized for the work that she did, her intellectual work, and she was valued as a, as a national treasure. And so I'm glad that the Navy really kept her on active duty. I know that that had to have, you know, partnership with Congress to make some, hey, there, there are the rules for most people and then there's the rules for Grace Hopper. So, you know, that makes me happy that somebody recognized her value as someone that can be important for our heritage. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and in the, the time that we have remaining, uh, I have a, a few questions for you. Uh, we, we, we've got about 10 minutes or so. My first one is, uh, speaking to anyone who might be thinking about going and saying, well, how do I wind up where Stephanie did? I hate when people say that because I'm like, well, don't do what I did. And the world's a different place now, <laughs> right? But what advice do you have somebody who's considering some of the amazing paths you've taken, Navy, uh, cryptography, security, 
somebody who's interested in history, what, what would you say to that person and, and what path would you recommend to them today? You're right. It's a tough question. We used to get these briefings when I was in the Navy about here's what your career path ought to be. And in cryptology, it was like, yeah, that's kind of the guess today. But, you know, maybe it's satellite communication. Maybe it's digital communication. Maybe it's, you know, so I think you need to pay attention to if you're in a career field, what other people have done and see if that makes sense for you. But I also think you have to enjoy what you're doing and you have to make those decisions for yourself, for your family, and you have to be able to reconcile all of that together. I always selected a, you know, when it was, you know, the choice of three duty stations, what sounded like the most challenging and most interesting job. Because I learned you can't predict what it's going to be like, but if it doesn't keep you engaged and you don't feel like you're making a valuable contribution, I think you get stale. And it doesn't matter, I think, if, if it pays well. It's, I think, more about what are you getting out of it. So I would say listen to those little inner voices that you have that say, I think this is the right thing to do and this is you know, where I would like to go. I also have to mention that your work for the state and with the state of Massachusetts has been inspiring. And I think you're doing some great things for cyber in Massachusetts and on a bigger stage as we take a role in the country and the world. Do you have any particular inspirations right now for hey, that inner voice? What's influencing the inner voices? You say, how do I drive a cyber agenda for Massachusetts? Yeah, I think the most rewarding thing I found is how helpful people want to be about improving cybersecurity for the state. It really has been amazing. Every time we've had a meeting, the types of people that come that give up their time during their busy day, you know, Sam, you're in this business. So yeah. people want, are in the cybersecurity business because they want to help and they want to make things better. And so I've been rewarded because the governor started the center, kind of said, let's see what we can do. We need to help in the ecosystem, but we also need to pay attention to the resiliency. And, you know, I don't think we really estimated what ransomware was going to do to yeah. municipalities when we started this effort. So having an organization like the Mass Cyber Center that is available to try to be helpful when we can, I think is really important. And we didn't do it alone. I mean, there's only, you know, four of us at the center right now. Blows my mind with all that you do, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I see you yeah. guys everywhere and doing things and you put well, on Cyber Week. Yeah, but but we're a small number, but we've established partners. And, you know, Lior is on the strategy council. I've got a, a great strategy council that has guided me and provided support since day one, since before I showed up, really. They made it easy for me to walk in and do that. But, you know, when we hold a meeting or we hold the forum, we get a lot of people that say, this is an important thing for us to do for the Commonwealth. And let me help you with this. And if I can be helpful with this, let me know. So that sort of, you know, everywhere I go, running into people that will be helpful is really great. So I'm going to, I have a strange question and, and it's fine if you want to think about it for a minute. I have two questions left. So picture somebody for whom you're a mentor, right? Or perhaps somebody who's meant a lot to you as a security person, as a, as a, a woman with an amazing history and, and career, and you give them a book 
and you say, hey, I want you to have this book that inspired me, and you dedicate it to them, what would that book be? It's okay if you, if you want to take a minute for that, because I, I know I'm throwing this at you out of left field, but is there a book that comes to mind that you would just take off the shelf behind you, as I know you're sitting at home with the shelf behind you, and you would say, yeah. I'm going to give this one. It would be one of the World War II books, and I'd, I'd have to go back and pull the right one out. There was one that was like this long that was, it was focused on all the things that they did across World War II because their back was against the wall in Europe. And mm. it was largely what Great Britain did. They had some help from the United States and from others, but to think through would it be like Battle of Britain or would it be like Bletchley Park or would it be the North Atlantic convoys? Or? It was like the deception parts of it. Uh, the, the very intricate way of we really need Hitler not to know we're coming across the channel. Or that we can read his mail. Yeah. So we can read his mail. But, but it isn't just as easy as like, well, well, we'll fake him out by putting, you know, dirigibles over here. No, the level of detail of, putting spies in places to understand how the Germans were thinking about active activities, putting spies in places that could create an effect that could distract them. Having Bletchley Park and the Enigma and the Sigint that allowed you to have some sense of how they were commanding and controlling their forces and what they were, where they were putting things. So it was about a setting the condition, understanding the thinking of the adversary, putting in place ahead of time. How do we know what success looks like? You know, all of that. I mean, it is that book that's that thick that just kept going on and on and on and on. And I think, it was, <laughs> you know, and I was like, and these are unsung heroes. And many of them didn't live to see the end of the war because they got found out. Meaning that in this tome are so many good stories. Not that you want to torture a dear friend or a protege of yours. You want to say, hey, go find this, look in it, you're going to find amazing things. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There are a number of small vignettes and then it's, but it's, it's the small vignettes, but it's also how did it come together in a way that it made it successful and useful? Excellent. So I have one last question. I'm going to do it differently from how I've asked others. Normally I say, if I did a security, you know, poker game, would you join in? I'm going to do it. I make my seven-year-old daughter happy as a would you rather. So would you rather join a, uh, in a smoky filled room with the green table, a poker game with other security people, which we may or may not record depending on, on how bad it gets. Uh, uh, content -wise. <laughs> or would you rather maybe set up a more strategic simulation or game for those same people? and help me do so. Which would you rather do? Oh, I think the strategic game would be much more fun. Uh, I love that. Right. We do a tabletop, but we make it as immersive as we can kind of thing. Right. I think a well-designed game is really a lot of fun. And the reason why I always enjoyed working on games was because you really have to investigate and research what you think the problem is. And what you come to find out is the language people use to describe the problem doesn't really adequately address what the real part of the problem is. You have to get through the, well, it's this. It's this down to yeah. this. And then you really have to understand how do you deconstruct it so that the players can understand the issue 
at that level rather than keep talking about it at the thousand foot level. There's like a continuum of communication. The, the least rich is probably an SMS or even semaphore or something or, or Morse yeah. code. And then you go up through like interpersonal communication and, and sitting through a talk or, or reading a book. But the deepest ones are when the walls fade out and you feel like you're experiencing it. Right. So, so that's what you would rather instead of right. bluffing. It's when, they, it's when they say, hey, we're done for the day. We're all meeting down at the club and they're like, we'll be there in a minute. And then yeah. another hour goes by. That's when you know you've got them, right? The social is not the important thing. They really feel like they're now getting to the crux of an issue. And that's very rewarding. And that's what we have to do for more and more people, I think, outside our domain. We've got to make it approachable. And we've got to get the cyber learning out there that isn't just take another awareness course. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on. It has been fantastic. And I can't wait to, to hear how this comes out, but also to do more with you in the state. And uh, we seem to bump into each other all around the country. So hopefully we'll all be moving and not in quarantine soon and, and doing more of that. You're one of the people that always says yes when we <laughs> help. I don't, I don't have no in the vocab. I, I, can't. <laughs> I know. And you've been very helpful to us. So yeah, we'll see you around campus whenever that is. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you.